Thank you, Ryan. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here today. Thankful that you can come and be a part of our worship. It is so great to have Carl and Gwen with us uh, once again. We're trying to figure out some way not to let them leave, but we're not quite sure how to do that. For those of you who are new to Glen Allen and don't know Carl and Gwen, uh, one reason for the uh, joyful uh, recognition they had at the beginning of the service is uh, they were here from the very beginning. And uh, we sometimes tease Carl that he was here from the beginning, like Genesis 1-1, but from the very beginning of the Glen Allen Church, in fact, the church began in their uh, home and uh, met there for the first several months. And then uh, Carl served as one of our first elders, and uh, he and Gwen both served the church in so many different ways. And so it's uh, such a joy to have them in our midst again and to, uh, to welcome them back and to welcome all of you. We're thankful that you are here. I want to ask you a question that may seem a little strange since we just sang those rousing songs about heaven. But when was the last time you thought about death? And I'm not talking about death in the abstract. I'm not talking about the death of others. I'm talking about your own. Chances are it probably hasn't been very long ago because although death is a reality we don't like to think about, it is a reality. And it's all around us. And so from time to time, we do think of our own. Michelangelo is reported to have said, no thought is born in me that has not death engraved upon it. I hope that's not true for him. I hope his life is a little happier than that. But as morbid as that may sound and extreme as it may sound, most of us do think a lot about death. We've kind of been unable to not think about it the last couple of years, haven't we? Because it's sort of been thrust in our faces over and over again. But it is an inescapable reality. It's something that we don't look forward to, and yet something that is real. Paul describes it as the last enemy to be destroyed when Jesus comes again. The last enemy. It is an enemy. The last enemy, but it is an enemy. And it's troubling, and to us it's fearful. But by God's grace, there is a solution, and that solution is the salvation that we have in Jesus, who redeems us not only from our sins, but also from the fear of death. As the reading you just heard says, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Listen again to how the writer describes this in verse 9. He says, Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, he died so that we don't have to die eternally. He died so that there's hope for us to have life. And then in verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Now there's a lot in there, and I don't want you to miss any of it. It's important. Notice, first of all, he says, because we are flesh and blood, Jesus partook of flesh and blood. Why did my Savior come to earth, we sometimes sing? Because he had to become flesh and blood 
in order to save us who are flesh and blood so that he could die for us on the cross, that he could give his life and thereby destroy the devil. Now, the devil's not destroyed yet, but he's on his way. Read Revelation 20. His destruction is inevitable because of what Jesus has done. But in the process, he is tempting us, and through tempting us, leading us into sin, and sin is what kills us. But Jesus, in doing for us what he did, has delivered us from a lifetime of fear of death. Our lifelong slavery, the writer calls it. We've been set free from it. The bottom line is simply this, that as believers in Jesus, we don't have to live in fear of death. And as believers in Jesus, we ought not to live in fear of death. Why? <coughs> Excuse me. Because it... Because it's not unpleasant? No, it is. We're all kind of like Woody Allen, aren't we? Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way we look at it. We know, we know it's coming, and, and we're not afraid of it. We just don't want to be there when it happens. It is unpleasant. It isn't because death isn't unpleasant. It's because we know that death isn't permanent. For those of us who follow Jesus, death is not permanent. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus has been raised, we too will be raised. In fact, as he says in Romans 6, we have already been raised with him by being buried with him in baptism. When we are putting our trust, our faith in Christ, and we confess him and we're baptized into his death, Paul says, and then we are raised to walk with him in newness of life. And we need not fear death anymore. That takes the sting out of death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Because we know that even though we will die, we will also live in a state in which we will never die. Jesus said that in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's our conviction. That's our hope. And that life that we have because of what Jesus has done for us, that life after life, is what Scripture refers to as heaven. Now, that's such a wonderful thought and such amazing good news that it might surprise us that some people scoff at the idea of there being a heaven. Some people scoff at the idea of there being a hell. Some people scoff at the idea that there's anything after this physical life on earth. They reject Jesus, and so they reject the idea that he died to free them from the slavery of the fear of death. So they don't have that relief. They don't have that sense of being relieved from the fear of death. So how do unbelievers cope? How do unbelievers deal with the reality of death? Well, one of the ways that they tend to do it, and, and I'm outlining here some, some things that were uh, laid out in a recent book called The Case for Heaven by Lee Strobel, and he interviews a number of people, and one of his interviewees said, well, there's three ways, basically, that people cope with death when they're not believers. One is denial. They simply try to deny the reality of death. In spite of the consistent record of humanity, they think they will be the exception. There really are people who think that. There really are people who think that somehow they're going to escape death. 
There are some folks, not a few, but a lot. There are a lot of folks who believe that somehow before their time comes, science is going to make death null and void. Science is going to eradicate death. They're convinced of that. If we can just get enough scientific breakthroughs. Elon Musk, about whom we've been hearing a whole lot recently, is an advocate of what's called transhumanism. Elon Musk says that what we need to do is develop the technology to so alter the human brain that our bodies no longer decay, and so we will not die. Transhumanism. Some people call it human plus. There's a tiny little problem with that. You have within your brain a thousand million connections, and there is no human technology that even comes close to being able to, to rewire that. Can't be done. Still, there are people who hope that something like that will happen. There have always been people, or at least for a long time, who put a, a whole lot of hope in uh, maybe being frozen, you know, and then later thawed out. I don't know about you, but I think I'd just soon pass on <laughs> <laughs> as be frozen in a block of ice in hopes that someday I'll thaw. But there are people who are simply looking into these things and grasping for them. I went to a seminar at a local hospital a number of years ago, and the speaker, who was an MD, was talking about some sort of health practices, I forget what it was, and said that people who practice these particular good health practices had a 50% chance, uh, less chance of dying than people who didn't. <laughs> and, and I was sitting there and I thought, do you realize what you just said? You know, I'm pretty sure that it's 100% across the board. No matter what you do, there is going to be that death. But many live as though they will never die, and they just try not to think about it. Some go so far as to make death out to be a good thing. Steve Jobs once told an audience that death is very likely the single best invention of life because it clears out the old to make way for the new. I wonder if he still believes that. An atheist by the name of Sam Harris said, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. When you die, you'll return to that nothingness that you were before you were born. Death is not the problem. Life is the problem. You believe that? Death isn't the problem. Life is the problem. Then why do we cling to it the way we do? Why do we love it the way that we do? People are trying to give assurance, but what a thoroughly hopeless view of existence to say that we will return to nothingness. What a hopeless view. So some people cope, try to cope with denial. Others cope with the reality of death with distraction. I'll just keep myself so distracted with things that I won't even think about it. I won't have time to think about it keep the mind occupied. It explains why our culture is so saturated with the desire for entertainment, just a, a thirst for entertainment. There, there's so many people who just have to have nonstop entertainment at their fingertips all the time, whether it's movies or it's music or it's sports or it's games or it's travel or whatever it is. They've just got to have something all the time. Why? Because it numbs the brain. And it keeps you from thinking serious thoughts about things like death and afterlife and reality. 
And so people try to cope with it by distraction. We are, in fact, as Neil Postman wrote years ago, amusing ourselves to death. Amusing ourselves to death, trying to keep ourselves from having to think about the reality of the death that awaits us. Another reaction, I wouldn't call it a coping technique exactly, but another reaction to the reality of death is depression. So you have denial and distraction and depression. Depression afflicts a lot of people in a variety of ways and for a lot of reasons, but one of the most common reasons is because people face the reality of their own death and it depresses them. They face the loss of loved ones and it depresses them and they have no hope about it. You remember Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Grief in itself is not a horrible thing, but grief without hope is. And so Paul says, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. But so many people don't have any hope. One writer in a Huffington Post article says that depression is a major problem, particularly among atheists, and often leads to suicide. Why do you suppose that is? Because there's no hope. If you think that all you're going to is nothingness anyway, why not just jump on in? One writer says that people often talk about an epidemic of suicide, but the real epidemic is the increasing rejection of a robust belief in the afterlife. That's the epidemic. That's the epidemic. The suicide is simply the symptom. Well, that's how unbelievers tend to cope, but unbelievers sometimes ask, but are there really any reasons to believe in an afterlife? Are there really any reasons to believe in heaven? And the answer is yes. There are some very, very good ones. Let me give you just a few. One of them is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. One of my favorite verses. It says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Did you catch that? We have eternity in our hearts. We are born with eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? It means that we are born with a sense that there is something beyond this life, that this isn't all there is. We are born with that sense in us because God has put it in us, the reality that there is more to life than just this life. Now, apart from God's revelation in his word, we can't know what that is because that's what the writer says. So we can't find out what God has been doing from the beginning to the end. How do we know God created the heavens and the earth? Well, the Bible says that. And how do we know what's going to happen in the future? Scripture tells us. And if it were not from, for that, we wouldn't know what was going to happen from the beginning to the end. But we still have that sense within us. Even unbelievers have that sense within the, in them that this cannot be all that there is. The first conversation I ever remember having with someone who said, I do not believe in God, went to the subject of death. And I asked this man, I said, can you really believe? that when you die, you will simply cease to exist. Can you even imagine that there will come a time when there is no more you? 
And he said, no, I really can't imagine that. And I said, then God is telling you something. He has put eternity into your heart. He has put eternity into our hearts. And the presence of that eternity across the human spectrum is an indication of the reality that there's something beyond this life. There also, I think, is an argument to be made from the linear nature of time and of the universe. What does that mean? It means that time in the universe had a beginning and it's moving somewhere. It's on a continuum. There are some folks in the world who believe that that time is cyclical, that things just go around and around and around and they never end. That is neither spiritually nor scientifically valid. We live in a deteriorating universe. We live in a deteriorating world. We live in a world that is degenerating all the time. It's headed somewhere. It's going to run out at some point. And that indicates to me that we are headed somewhere too. We're headed somewhere too. Not to annihilation, but to regeneration. Not to annihilation, but to regeneration. Not to nothingness, but to a new something that we at present simply cannot imagine. Anything else is beyond imagination. To think that we simply won't be here anymore. And then there are the great promises of Scripture. This is what we're going to be looking at in the next few, for the next few Sundays. Are these great promises in Scripture that talk to us about heaven. But listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 1. He says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this tent, in this tent we groan. He's talking about our bodies. Our bodies are like a tent. They're not a house, they're a tent. There's a difference, isn't there? In this tent, we groan, and, and we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee Paul says right now we're just living in this tent. This is temporary housing. It's not everything that there is about us. Aren't you glad of that? Let me tell you, when you get to be my age, you'll be real glad of it. <laughs> you'll be really glad that this is not you. It's part of you. Can't get away from that. But it is not all there is to you. You're living in a temporary tent, but God has an eternal dwelling for us. A house not made with hands. So Paul says we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather be out of the temporary dwelling and into the permanent one. I don't know very many people who would like to live in a tent. All their lives. There may be a few. If you are one of them, don't tell me, please. <laughs> I don't know very many people who, after spending a week or two weeks or whatever in a tent, would not be, not be ready to go home. 
to a permanent dwelling, to something more stable, to something, okay, with plumbing. You know, we don't want to stay in a tent, and that's what Paul says. We don't have to. We're always of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and home of the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's all going to come down to that. It's all going to come down to us leaving this tent. We're all going to leave it. You're going to leave your tent behind. No matter how much you like it, no matter how much you love it, no matter how much you've enjoyed it, you're going to leave it behind. Question is, are you headed toward that house not made with hands? That's eternal in the heavens that will never go away. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one will receive good or evil according to what we've done in the body. That's a choice we have to make now. We've got some things to do while we're in this tent. If we do the things God calls us to do while we're in this tent, he'll welcome us into that heavenly dwelling. Then there's John 14, 1 to 3. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now here he talks about that heavenly dwelling. And he says, don't worry, there's going to be a room for you. I'm preparing it. There are many rooms. And if, if that, that weren't so, I, I wouldn't have told you that. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going away, going to prepare a place for you, but then I'm going to come again and I'm going to take you to be with me so that where I am, there you may be also. So Paul talks about a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. And Jesus said, I will go to prepare a place for you and that he will come again to receive us to himself. I would say yes, there are very good reasons to believe in heaven. There are very good reasons to believe in an afterlife and there are no good reasons not to. Stephen Hawking is a name you may know, renowned physicist who was an amazing intellect throughout his life. But Stephen Hawking was not a believer. And Hawking said that heaven is just a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. An Oxford professor named John Lennox replied, atheism is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. Don't be afraid of the light. It's showing you the way home. So where would you rather live? In the darkness of doubt and despair or in the light of God's love revealed in his son Jesus Christ? Making that decision is how you choose heaven as your eternal and very real home. Making that decision to follow Christ, to believe his promises, to trust in the power of his blood, to wash you clean of your sins, is how that comes about. Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. 
He will deliver you today if you so desire. If you will turn to him in faith and in trust. If you're ready to live for him. If you're united with him in the act of baptism, in that death, and that newness of life. That will be a life that will never end. If you're ready for that, come and tell us while we stand and sing. I can hear.